Shaker crew, what's going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 246. Yes, indeed, 246. Working our way to 250. And then after that, they'll just be 251, so there's no major thing. It's not like a milestone. 250 isn't a milestone to me. 300 will be a milestone. 200 was a milestone. 250 is a little bit like when you turn 19. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, okay, you're a little bit older. It's the last year. You're teens, but nothing special happens other than you're 19. So anyway, we're not here to talk about chronology or age or birthdays. No, we're here to talk about what it means to be an every single day missionary. And uh, that has all sorts of different outcroppings, implications, things that we can focus on, do, think through, uh, ponder, and then act on so that we might be the most effective everyday missionaries that we can be. And when I think about that phrase, the everyday missionary, um, I'm increasingly uh, aware of the fact that that kind of taps into several different areas simultaneously. In other words, it's not as cut and dry as far as like, hey, who are we to be a missionary to? It's not as cut and dry as it used to be, right? So I go back to uh, the 80s when my faith became kind of real to me and when I was introduced to what it meant to really share your faith. And like in high school, for example, I brought my Bible to class in all my classes. I wore Christian t-shirts. You know, there was this very clear sense of who the mission field was. It was the stone and the rockers and the whatever else, the band nerds. I don't know what it was, but there was a clear sense of like, hey, there are lost people that we're supposed to reach out to. They've been lost. They've never been found to then turn and be lost again. They were just lost. And now we're reaching out so that they might be found and then become a part of our tribe. And then the kind of the whole thing kind of continues to recycle in that fashion. That's the way it used to be. Um, but now I find myself in my 50s, looking around at uh, our kind of overall cultural framework, and things have shifted around, right? There's a number of things that have kind of uh, enhanced and, 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 and taken on a life of their own in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. There's other things that have uh, kind of lost some traction, and therefore it, it makes the job of the missionary a more nuanced concept, Right. Which, if anything, I'd say back in the 80s, I felt like my job was more evangelism, where today I feel my job is more mission. And and there's a difference between the two. And let me give you a sense of what I mean by that. Uh, back when I was in high school or early in my 20s or all the way even into my 30s, uh, there was a little bit more of a sense that uh, the the people that you ran into or did life with or worked with or went to school with, whatever else, that by and large, they were familiar with the Christian faith or they even had roots in the Christian faith. Um, so you could talk shop and you could speak of the Bible and you could talk about different things. And most people kind of knew what you were talking about. And therefore, there was this assumption that most people are kind of Christianized in some way and that Christians speak as like the dominant religious speak of the American kind of template. And so with that, it was more like evangelism. You weren't thinking in terms of how do you identify a culture and figure out the cultural norms and then try to subversively come under those cultural norms and bring the gospel it was more like, no, everybody kind of heard this. Now, how do you convince people to buy into what everybody's pretty much heard? Because by and large, America was seen to be a Christian kind of nation. Not that everybody was Christians in the nation, but by and large, people went like, hey, that's just kind of the air that everybody's breathing. They're breathing Christian air. That was kind of the attitude. But then things began to morph in the late 90s, 2000s, and onward till today, where we very much live in a post 
Christian context. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons for that, and there's all sorts of research for that. And so I think it's a fair term to use that we're a bit more post-Christian. And with that, the culture, right, again, that air we're breathing is more clearly post-Christian. And there's all sorts of things that are kind of pointing that out. I don't think we need to debate that here on the podcast, except to say that clearly uh, the the old ideas of everything was driven through this lens of Christian values, whether it be in politics or in uh, media or wherever else, those things have kind of evaporated, right? So uh, just the standards have changed. And with that, it means that we as followers of Jesus can't just take for granted that everybody understands what we're talking about or that the air that everybody's breathing is Christian air, but rather we have to acknowledge that, no, we're breathing a very different kind of air, and that makes us more like a missionary in a foreign country than it does a believer in a country that is very Christianized, right? We are in a very not Christianized culture, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, and therefore a good missionary, what they do is they're constantly understanding, assessing their they're wrestling with whatever the the new air is that they are immersed in and what everybody's breathing in that new air. And then they're trying to figure out, now, how do I bring Jesus to that context, right? So that's why we're missionaries more than we're just simply evangelists. We have to be students of the world that we're immersed in in ways that we didn't have to be students even like 30 years ago, right? So that's part of the dilemma is just accepting that. That's why sometimes, you know, when I look at some of the things that that I see evangelicals push, I think they're pushing for this old identity of a Christian nation. And with that, it's doing more damage than it is good because we're pursuing the right thing in wrong ways as opposed to pursuing the right thing in right ways. I think the right thing is Jesus. The right ways is the kingdom. I think sometimes what we're wanting is more religious ethics or Christian ethics, which is not a bad thing, but we're doing it through trying to just get our way in a lot of different avenues as far as politics and things of that nature. And and I think that does more damage than good to the gospel. It certainly does more damage than good to the people that are yet to embrace the gospel. And that's what the topic is today a little bit. So going back to who are we missionaries to? Uh, like I said, before it used to be the not convinced, never convinced, not in the system, not a part of the tribe. And then we reached them and they joined into the church, right? But now what we're seeing in all of our statistics and data, polls, that kind of thing, is that more and more people who were a part of our tribe are leaving our tribe. A lot of the kids that were raised inside the church are leaving the church. And as people are leaving, whether it is for uh, deconstructing purposes or whether it's just like, hey, when it's time for their faith to become their own, they don't want the faith, whatever it is, there's a lot of departures that are happening That was unanticipated, right? And even in this, some of those departures are not coming back. And so the assumption was, hey, you know what? I get it. When you're in your 20s, you leave the faith, you go do your own thing, sow your wild oats, your party, you smoke some weed, you do whatever you want to do. You don't go to church. You pick your own life. You take a philosophy class, decide God's dead, and you go do things for the next eight to 10 years. But then you settle down, you get married, you have kids, and you go, we want our kids to have the same values we did when we were growing up. So we're going to go back to church. Why not? That's good. But we're finding that's not what's happening. They're not coming back in the ways that they used to. So the millennials, right? Those, those, those people that we were talking about and writing about 
15 years ago, they're now married. They are having kids. They are not coming back uh, necessarily in droves. And there are reasons that they are stating for why that is the case. And so with that, we have to go, man, what are those kinds of reasons? What is it that needs to happen? Or what do we need to own? Or what do we need to to either admit or alter or, or you know, you pick your way of describing it. What is the thing that we need to do as missionaries? Because we go, the culture has changed. We need to be students of the culture so we can reach people in this new culture that we're facing. And that is the dilemma that is always going to be before us. Now, not just reaching those who have never been apart, but those who have been apart and have departed from being a part of what we've been about. Or our kids who have departed and don't want to be a part of what we are doing. Now, at the core, I believe, of much of this, it's probably more than one thing, right? So one is just a simple, you know what, I just don't believe, right? And they can pile up the reasons and, and that kind of thing. And there's just going to be some people, it's just a simple attrition reality that, you know, once they come into a certain stage of life, they go, this doesn't make any sense to me. I think there's too many problems and loopholes and contradictions. And, you know, they just don't believe. It's just that simple for them, Right. But there are other people who are departing the church, whether it be from the roots of their parents, they just don't want to be a part of the church, or maybe it's people that are maybe more in their 40s, 50s, 60s that have been in the church, and now they're stepping out of the church, and some it's just pure disbelief, but then others, they're leaving for bewilderment, right? So some kids, as as they're turning, you know, into their late teens and 20s, they're leaving the church in bewilderment or Christianity in bewilderment. Uh, You have people that have been in the church for a long time and they're leaving in bewilderment. And at the core of that, they are reflecting on this thing that they're leaving and they're saying, I'm leaving it because I don't see the evidence that those who are in it believe it. That's kind of the core of the challenge, right? So they're going, we see what you've been telling us. We see what you've been preaching to us. We see that you've been pointing to the Bible and to Jesus. And, you you know, you, you want these ethics to be lived out. But then when we look to you to live those things, to really so lean into those things, you're willing to suffer, you're willing to miss out, you're willing to, to, to take giant steps of faith as opposed to lean into control. When we wanted you to do the stuff that really proved you believe this stuff without a shadow of a doubt, we didn't see the evidence of real faith. So we saw platitude, we saw doctrinal statements, we saw ideologies, but we didn't see this living, breathing Um, kind of transformative, compelling thing. We just saw a religion among religions that when kind of push comes to shove, you turn to earthly tools as opposed to you lean into Jesus-minded living. That's much of the criticism uh, that we are hearing and have been hearing for a number of years. In fact, as our younger people are now kind of leaving their Christian roots or whatever else, this is one of the biggest things that, that they are continuing to say, which is, you know what? It's it's not that we're leaving Jesus. It's that we don't see Jesus in the church, and so we're leaving. You raised us telling us that this book tells us the truth, but then we don't see how Christians are wanting to live out especially the truth of the Gospels, which even to me is the center point of the Bible, right? So all scripture is given by God, but there's something about the Gospels that's uniquely profound, and it really does give the framework of kingdom living. And they're saying, we don't see that at scale with many people in the church. And we see certainly don't see that at scale in the evangelical movement by and large here in the United States. And so they say from that, we're out, right? And this is where you and I, we need to know what, what the perspectives are 
so that we can then be better missionaries and we can disrupt the stereotypes and and we can alter perceptions that people have. And so I know so often on the podcast, I say these things and for some, I think it can be a little discouraging because they're like, man, you know, is there a week you don't pick on us? And I go, well, my job is not to pick on us at all. Honestly, it's not. My job is to say, unless we assess what the perceptions or the problems are, and I want to be clear that there's a difference between perception and problem. So you can have just perceptions and you're just trying to alter people's perceptions, or you can have real problems and their perceptions are based on real problems. I'm not saying that all perceptions are actual problems, but at the same time, there have been problems that have led to certain perceptions. And, And so what we then need to do is say, okay, we want to be students of the culture in the culture, Christianity is is a tarnished brand, right? Evangelical Christianity, white evangelical Christianity in particular, is kind of a tarnished brand. And they assume that if we're the kind of people that say we believe the Bible is the word of God and we believe that we should evangelize and we should go to church on a regular basis and these simple little litmus tests, then by kind of default, that's in their minds an evangelical Christian, right? So if we're saying we believe the Bible is the word of God and we go to church and he expects something of our lives. We're going to be branded with that label. So now then we need to be students of how they perceive that kind of a Christian so that as missionaries, we can come underneath that and change perspective or change an assumption one-to-one, right? Person to person. As a movement, I don't know if that's going to be very doable. I, I, I think personally, even I'm in a space where I look at American evangelicalism and I don't have a great deal of faith in it at this point. I I think it's had too many scandals. I think it's had too many inconsistencies. I think it's had too many, uh, you know, just it's been so politicized. It's 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 broken at that level. So I still believe very much that life is better with Jesus. I still I almost think that the label Christian is safer than evangelical. I remember a few years ago, it was like, oh, I don't want to call myself a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower because Christians tarnished. Well, evangelical probably is now the tarnished word. But again, our job one-to-one is not to try to rescue the label or the brand. Our job one-to-one is to convince people of something different by the way we live and think and how we respond and act, and even how we take ownership of the problems that others see, and we identify that, yep, I agree with you, those are problems as well. Because here's the thing, our our purpose and job, really, in a lot of ways, as kind of the, I don't know, the the current generation of, of followers of Jesus, of Christians, of those who believe that life is better with Jesus, this current generation has a responsibility as missionaries also to the next generation. The next generation that currently is walking or thinking about walking or or going, is this Jesus figure real? Or, or do Christians really take seriously what Jesus calls them to do? Like all of that falls on us to then model and live something different. And it reminds me of the book of Numbers. All right, so uh, coming up in January at Redemption Church, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Numbers, right? That's when everybody hears us now and they're like, oh, we know to take January off. No, you want to be there for Numbers. We, we've we've done this over the years now. We've done Genesis, Exodus. Uh, I did Leviticus. One of my favorite series of all time was doing the book of Leviticus. And so this time we're going to do Numbers. We're only going to do it in five weeks because, again, Numbers has a lot of numbers. We could get bogged down. But but one of the meta themes of numbers is this idea that the the first generation is not faithful. 
And so from that, God puts them on this really long 40-year journey. The trip could only take three weeks. Like the distance from, from Egypt to the promised land, just this hoofing it would have been like a three week walk, right? But God's like, nope, we're going to go in circles for 40 years till this generation dies off because it's kind of corrupted. And we're going to then have the new generation, a generation of faith move forward. Well, here's the thing. We don't want to be a generation that dies off and then God just invests in a new generation. We want to be the generation that actually stimulates and mobilizes and displays a Christ authentic faith, a compelling life transforming world shaping faith that takes seriously what Jesus calls us to, right? That takes seriously what the kingdom life is all about and believes that his upside down and backwards ways of loving, caring, showing mercy, compassion, meekness, all the stuff we see in the red letters of Jesus, that that will actually be the thing that changes the world. Not the, not the tools that we so often run to that are now turning people off. They're going, that doesn't sound like Jesus, look like Jesus. Why would I want to stick with Jesus? If Jesus is real, I don't find him in the church because the church doesn't reinforce those kinds of things. They reinforce other things. And this is why we as individuals want to disrupt that stereotype. We want to be different, right? Because lately I've been asking people who are on the fringe of leaving the church, who have left the church. I talk to young people who are like, I'm done with, uh, you know, kind of the crazy evangelical Christianity stuff. I'm asking them like, what's, what's the ultimate problem? And a minority are like, I just don't believe. But the majority is, I don't think you all believe, right? That That's... It's it's like I'm stepping away because it doesn't seem like, you know, like the lightning's coming, the bolt's coming to the church and and you don't look like you believe. You look like you believe some other stuff more and I just, I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for people who actually believe this stuff. That's kind of some of the, the issue that is before us. Now, all of that is reminiscent of an article that I read this week and it's interesting because the article is recirculating through social media, but the article's not new. So this was written by John... Uh, Pavlovitz, I think that's correct, Pavlovitz, uh, who was a former pastor in the Methodist Church. He has since uh, left kind of pastoral ministry. He's a Christian on the, the left, right? So he would definitely land on the left of almost every conceivable social policy you can think of and probably some theological policies as well. He falls on the left, but he has a, a firm understanding of what the church is all about and the Bible and theology and everything else. And so back in 2018, he wrote this article and the title of the article is White Evangelicals. This is why people are through with you, right? That was the title. And and I didn't see this back in 2018, um, but I'm seeing it resurface now, all of these social media accounts, and it's people that have left the church. Uh, I'm seeing it cycle through. And so again, I have my little missionary brain going and, and I'm like, oh, okay, uh, what is it that they are saying? This is why we're done. And what can I learn from why they're done, right? So instead of me being offended, because I think that's too easy to do. Like the, the, the cheapest out is to say, I don't like what you're saying about us. You're mean, you're persecuting, you're bullyish, you're cancel culture. And then we refuse to listen to their critique. Um, I think it's more valuable to hear critique, to go, yeah, I don't know if that's true. And then, oh yeah, I can see why that's true. Or maybe it's not me, but yeah, that's probably some other people. Or maybe that's not the majority opinion, but it's enough of minority opinion that 
people have believed it's the majority opinion and I need to be a tool that changes that perspective, right? That's kind of the heart behind this. And so again, a good missionary says, what's the air everybody's breathing right now, or at least a lot of people. And then from that, how can I subvert that, change that opinion and hopefully change the air, right? Like that's the heart that we want to have in this. So not reactive, not offended, not defensive, just going, okay, let me take it in. Let me see what I can do with that. And maybe I can bring more positive uh, to the lives of people who are to be reached, whether it's re-reaching them. And I'm not making a theological statement here. I just mean like practically like, hey, people that are stray, walk away, disbelieve, whatever it is, we want to re-reach them as well as trying to reach people maybe who have never been a part, but are now a part of the clanging that says you Christians are very inconsistent with your faith expression. Right. I think the other thing this does is it it really does challenge uh, how much we allow ourselves to be uh, tainted or contaminated by political positions and political posturing in in our evangelical space. Now, don't get me wrong. There are churches on the left, and I think they're just as contaminated by their politics on the left. So I I don't want because I think sometimes people are like, oh, why are you always picking on on the right? And I'm like, because. We're all on the right, basically. Like, that's the thing. Like, we have idols on the right, and I'm in a church on the right, and I sit on this right side of the social equation. If I was a progressive pastor and I was sitting on the progressive side of Christianity, I would challenge its idols. I think it has idols over there, but but that's not where I live. That's not the audience of this podcast. We're over here on this other side, and therefore, all the more, we want to make sure we're being honest to challenge our idols because idols always destroy the mission of God. Idols always get in the way of the flourishing of the kingdom. And we as Christians, as Americans, as evangelicals, we are just as prone to idolatry as anybody. And we do have idols, idols that try to give us a sense of security, of safety, of prosperity. A lot of those things are just idols. And we want to be aware of that uh, as we're going through things. And therefore, to see our idols dethroned and destroyed, and from that, that we might move forward in kingdom flourishing as ambassadors of a different kind of world in the name of Jesus, doing it his way, right? That's what we want to do. So we want to listen to criticism, dethrone our idols, repent of our sin, and then be faithful to Jesus to do what he wants us to do and to live in profoundly different ways that can actually change the landscape before us. So, white evangelicals, this is why people are through with you. The article of 2018, come back with a vengeance and 2022, and we want to see what we can learn from this. So, it starts, this is Dear White Evangelicals. And by the way, this has a little bit of a poetic flair to it as well, which I give him kudos for actually being a good wordsmith with his critique. Right. So, this is a former pastor, still considers himself a part of the faith, and he's scolding the white evangelical. He says, I need to tell you something. People have had it with you. They're done. They want nothing to do with you any longer. And here is why. They see your hypocrisy, your inconsistency, your incredibly selective mercy, and your thinly veiled supremacy. For eight years, they watch you relentlessly demonize a black president, a man faithfully married for 26 years, a doting father, and a husband without a hint of moral scandal or the slightest whiff of infidelity. They watched you deny his personal faith conviction, argue his birthplace, and assail his character. Without any cause or evidence, they saw you uh, brandish scripture to malign him and to use the latest of the radical crazy stereotypes in criticizing him. And through it all, white evangelicals, you never once suggested that God placed him where he was. 
You never publicly offered prayers for him and his family. You never welcomed him to your Christian universities. You never gave him the benefit of the doubt in any instance. You never spoke of offering him forgiveness or mercy. Your evangelists never publicly thanked God for his leadership. Your pastors never took the pulpit to offer solidarity with him. You never made any effort to affirm his humanity or show the love of Jesus to him in any qualifiable way. You violently opposed him at every single turn without offering a single ounce of grace you claimed at the heart of your faith tradition. You jettisoned Jesus as you dispensed damnation on him. And yet you give carte blanche to the white Republican man so riddled with depravity, so littered with extramarital affairs, so unapologetically vile, with such a vast resume of moral filth that it boggles the mind. And the change in you is unmistakable. It has been an astonishing conversion to behold, a literal being born again. With him, you suddenly find religion. With him, you're now willing to offer full absolution. With him, all is forgiven without repentance or admission. With him, you're suddenly able to see some invisible, deeply buried heart. With him, sin has become unimportant, compassion no longer a requirement. With him, you see only providence. And white evangelicals, all those who have had it with you, they see it clearly. They recognize the toxic source of your inconsistency. They see that pigmentation and party are your sole deities. They see that you aren't interested in perpetuating the love of God or emulating the heart of Jesus. They see that you aren't burdened to love the least or to be agents of compassion or to care for your Muslim, gay, African, female, or poor neighbors as yourself. They see that you are really interested in doing one thing, and that is making a God in your own ivory image and demanding that the world bow down to it. They recognize this is all about white Republican Jesus, not a dark-skinned Jesus of Nazareth. And I know that you don't realize it, but you're digging your own grave in these days. The grave of your very faith tradition your willingness to align yourself with cruelty is a costly marriage. Yes, you've gained a Supreme Court seat, a few months with the presidency as a mouthpiece and the cheap high of temporary power, but you've lost a whole lot more. You've lost an audience with millions of wise, decent, good-hearted, faithful people with eyes to see this ugliness. You've lost any moral high ground or spiritual authority with this generation. You've lost any semblance of Christ-likeness. You've lost the plot, and most of all, you have lost your soul. I know it's likely you will dismiss these words. The fact that you've even made your bed with such a malevolent shows how far you have gone and how insulated you are from the realities that are in front of you. But I had to at least try to reach out to you. It's what Jesus would do. Maybe you need to read what he said again, if it still matters to you. And then he put a link to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Now, you can absorb that or not absorb that. You can hate that. You can disagree with that. You can kind of line item. That's true. That's not true. That's true. That's not. However you want to take that in, it's totally fine. The, the reason I bring this up is because I think uh, this article captures many conversations and many interactions that I've had with people in recent months and probably the last year to 18 months total where I go, it this resonates with the critique, right? And I think what was really interesting, um, this statement here, he says, and you don't realize it, but you're digging your own grave in these days, the grave of your very faith tradition. 
right? It's a costly marriage that we've aligned ourselves with. I, I, I think that's the thing to take note of and to kind of ask ourselves, like, is, is that perhaps true? You know, we, we see in every quadrant, Christianity is on the, on the downtrend in the United States, like in every quadrant. And, and, and so why? And I think this article at least offers us as a, a, a glimpse into the why, right? And, and maybe not every part of that. I don't even agree with every part of that article. I, I think some of the white supremacy overtones are, are too dramatically stated. Like it, it was always just a black versus white thing. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm not even in a space to be able to go there necessarily. I, I do think that there is racial issues that are still kind of cooked into the cake, baked in, so to speak, to the American culture. So I do think there's more problem than less problem, but I'm not sure the problem is nearly as dramatic as this article captures. So that would be like an area of departure, but it doesn't matter because to him, to them, to others, this is their perception. It may not be the full problem, but there might be a little bit of problem. And therefore, a lot of perception, and we want to be aware of that, and we want to go out of our way then to go, man, how do I win you over? How do I lower the salsa level? How do I try to take off the social plate, some of the things that are getting in the way, so I can get things back to what really matters? And that's where, again, I love the fact that he puts a link to Matthew 5 through 7. I agree with him. Do we take seriously what Jesus has called us to do, and then we do it? Because I believe that's what many people are critiquing. What they're critiquing is, I just don't see Jesus in all of this. I see religion. I see Christendom, which by the way, Christendom was the label of Europe when the Catholic Church controlled it. And so I, they're saying, I see Christians wanting to create a Christendom where then you're controlling everybody in the name of Christ but am I seeing Jesus? Am I seeing the sacrificial cross-bearing, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, Jesus in the life of the American church? That's the thing we want to reclaim. That's the place we want to drive our flag into the ground and stand proud, right? We want to stand proud by being humble. We want to stand proud by being loving. We want to stand proud by saying, you know what? I, I want to seek a righteousness uh, that's the kingdom first, not America first, not my prosperity first, not my comfort first, not my safety first, but kingdom first. And here's the thing. If we make kingdom first, all that other stuff goes away because there's no guarantee for prosperity, security, safety, and just frankly, nothing else can be first if kingdom's first. So even the labels that we use, the things that we celebrate, the flags that we fly, if it isn't kingdom and righteousness first, if it isn't Jesus at all cost, we're not giving the message Jesus wants us to give. And what's great is that he's given us the power to do it. He's given us the calling to do it. He's given us the impetus to do it. He's even promised that in the end, man, this whole thing plays out where the kingdom wins. The kingdom wins. And so we want to be emissaries and ambassadors of that kingdom, promoting the image of the king we see in the gospels, a king who comes as a servant, a king who comes as a slave, a king who, when he is abused and threatened and maligned, doesn't try to ensure his protection, his rights, and his freedom, but rather says all that matters is doing the will of the Father. All that matters is loving the world. All that matters is driving out the the the, the stench and the, the grime of Satan, sin, and death. And that's what we want to do as well. He is to be our priority. This is to be our priority. That's why we want to be faithful missionaries to really embody and live out the thing that he's called us to, right? To take seriously what our critics say. And and the things that aren't fair, 
you know what? We just absorb being mistreated for doing right. The things that are fair, we want to repent of those things and do it different. That's Peter's message to us in 1 Peter. And I think if we can do that, if we can say, all right, it's all about what he's calling us to do. I don't want to be culpable in the critique that people bring. I'm not talking we're going to be perfect, but in our imperfection, we should be humble and we should be contrite and we should be kind in response, right? We should live out all those traits of the fruit of the spirit, which are so beautiful, right? As people accuse us of things, we want to go out of our way to prove, no, we're not that. We're not those things, right? And we want to love them even if there are critics. We want to care for them even if they have no care for us. Because that's the Jesus way. That's the stuff of Christ. And the more we do that, lean into that, want that, crave that, pray for that, ask for the Spirit to empower us to that, the more we will fulfill our calling to be everyday missionaries.